Well, thank you very much indeed. This is a new experience for me. I've never had a morning slot in my life in five years. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, there we are. Thanks so much indeed. Appreciate that. Appreciate you sitting here listening to these talks on, on various things. Uh, I chose Richard Weaver, and it was suggested the Moravians, so out of that came Benjamin Ingham. So really this is the talk that I was asked to give on the Moravians, and I guess quite a few of you have heard of the Moravians, and uh, you'll know a lot more about them in a few minutes' time. To my understanding, the Moravians are the only Protestant denomination that uh, are named after a geographical area. You say, what about the Plymouth Brethren? That's a misnomer. Really, they are the Dublin Brethren. Uh, that's where they come from. Uh, and in reality, in the early days, they said they weren't a denomination anyway. They were just a gathering of the Lord's people. But most denominations are named after a person or a theology. But the Moravians are named after a location. What I want to do is talk about the past in terms of where they came from, why they arrived on the scene, how they came to this country, the impact they had on this country, uh, and then some interesting things that, that we can learn from them. They had been called the pre-Reformation people, and, and that is right. They were sort of Reformation before Martin Luther was ever born. And really their founder was a man called Jan Hus. If you go to Prague today, uh, the back end of the central square of Prague, you will find Bethlehem Chapel. And that is where Jan Hus used to preach. Uh, and the chapel has been preserved as it was in the days of Hus. And it's quite uh, evocative going in there and standing in the pulpit thinking, here's a man who shook the whole of Europe by his preaching. Of course, he was greatly influenced by an Englishman called John Wycliffe. He got all the writings of Wycliffe and was deeply impressed by what he read, and he began to preach this kind of stuff. And basically, Jan Hus did two things. Number one, he lifted high the Lord Jesus. And you know, that is always our first calling. Yeah. He lifted high the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a privilege it is to lift high the Lord Jesus. What a wonderful Savior. Isn't it great we're not here to lift high Donald Trump? Yeah? Or Theresa May. Or Jeremy Corbyn. Yes? What's that lady called north of the border? I've forgotten her name anyway. But isn't it great we have a wonderful Savior of which we're not ashamed? Wonderful, wonderful Savior. And here's this man surrounded by religion, lifting high the Lord Jesus Christ. He lifted him high. He lambasted nonsense. Where was the nonsense primarily found? In the Roman Catholic Church. And do you know something? Because of that, he was stoned. Well, crucified. Literally, he was burnt at the stake. And you know, if you lift high the Lord Jesus Christ in the 21st century and lambast nonsense, you too will be burnt at the stake. Not kind of literally, although that day may well come, where people are martyred for the Lord Jesus, but you'll be ostracized and put on one side. That's what happened to Janus. Many people gathered around him and were warned by his preaching. The Adamites, the orphans, the Tabarites, they sound like groups, don't they? And the Eutroquists. With Janus out the way, suddenly the Roman Catholic Church realized this man was very powerful. And there's lots of people who are deeply upset that he's now dead. If we don't start to pacify these people, we've got a riot on our hands. And so the Catholic Church began to tone down a little and say to these people, if you come back into the fold, we'll make some concessions. You know, Mr. Huss was right on one or two things, and we're listening to you. And many bought into that and went back into the Catholic Church. A group of people refused to do so. They were called the Hussites. 
and they really suffered for the sake of the gospel. They moved to a place called Cunwald in Bohemia and were given the name Unitas Fratum, the unity of the brethren. They grew, but they knew severe waves of persecution. In fact, such was the persecution on one occasion that one of their families said, we just can't take any more. We are going west. And they kept going west until they arrived in our country. That family was called the Senec family. Uh, And several generations later, one of their grandchildren was called John Senec, who was a massive influence on this country and certainly influenced John and, and Charles Wesley. In 1722, uh, such was the ferocity of the persecution in in Cunwald, in in that area of Bohemia, that in the end, the heart of them got up and just said, we've got to get out of here. If we stay here any longer, there'll be nobody left. And so they began to travel west until they came to Saxony. And there they stopped on the estate of a man called Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf had a massive estate. And at this stage, Zinzendorf was only 22. And, uh, but he said, you can stop on my estate. And uh, it's fine. I, I won't bother you. You don't bother me. Uh, and that was the case. When word got out that there was a safe place uh, in Saxony where, where believers in the gospel could sort of feel safe, people came in their droves. Uh, And in in a few years, there were no less than 220 what you may call spiritual refugees living on the estate of Nicholas von Zinzendorf. They were called Moravians because they came from Moravia, which was a kind of district of Bohemia, and the name stuck. Where they lived was called Hernhut. It was given that name, God's Acre. God's Acre. We have a burial ground around our chapel, and I call it inwardly, I don't tell the whole members, <laughs> I, I call it our Hernhut, God's Acre, where we put the saints sort of in the ground and bury them. This was a living God's Acre, where God's saints were, but there was division. Basically, these 220 people who were growing, I mean, almost week by week, were just a nest of fanatical dissenters. And there's nothing more toxic than fanatical dissenters. You say, what did they fall out over? Well, you probably never heard of these things, but but they fell out over things like infant baptism, (laughs) uh, election, free will, church government, where does the seat of authority lie in the church? Those kind of things that don't bother your fellowship at all. uh, So they were all passionate about the gospel, And uh, it'd be interesting if we were here for 12 months. (laughs) Wash your minds. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So you can imagine what was, people are excited to be free. But, you know, once you've taken the lid off in terms of there's no persecution, you can start to feel free to express your views. And it became so toxic that in the end, Zinzendorf, who originally said, I'm happy to have you on my land, but I don't want to get involved. He said, I've got to get involved in this. And he came down and said, this has to stop. And he introduced united gatherings of singing and of praying and of sitting under the preaching of God's word. And for credit to him, he brought some sense of order and decorum to these uh, these radical dissenters. On the 13th of August, 1727, they met one day to break bread. 
And Zinzendorf says, that was our Pentecost. He said, as we were singing and praying, and after the exposition of God's word, for no apparent reason, the Holy Spirit just descended upon us. And people began to apologize to each other. They said, we're losing the plot. I'm sorry for the way I've been treating you. You say, how did they treat each other? They started kind of calling people, you are a false prophet. Yeah, you are the beast. You sound like the Antichrist. It's amazing, isn't it? Next time church meetings get tough, you realize <laughs> you ain't seen anything yet. That's how toxic it was. And so these people were getting up and, and they were just saying, I'm really sorry for the way I've been treating you. And that was that Pentecost which welded them together. They still had their views on free will and predestination, on church government and on baptism. But they said, while these are important issues to us, I'm not going to use this issue to hit you over the head. There's a bigger picture out there. There is a lost world. So let's get concerned about the lost world. And that's when they began to pray and started this hundred-year prayer meeting where where one family would commit themselves to an hour of a certain day for the week. Uh, and so, you know, imagine signing up. And, you know, right away I think, would you be really spiritual if you sign up at 3 o'clock in the morning so other folk could sleep? I don't know. I mean, and then it comes, you know, who's the most spiritual? The 3 o'clock prayers. Well, I mean, but anyway, all these families signed up and said, we'll pray for an hour at a time. And, and this, this hundred-year prayer meeting started where prayer was just going up for themselves and also for, for world mission. As news got around, this was a great haven to, to come and live. The numbers got bigger and bigger. And as things get bigger, you need more organization. What was a typical Moravian day in those days? They worked for 16 hours. They set up cottage industries. Of course, they worked the land. So they weren't just kind of there having praise and worship sort of 24-7. They worked 16 hours a day. They slept no longer than five hours a day. And then they said the other three hours are for eating and for worship. If you were a lady, you had to wear a bonnet. And depending on your status in life, you had to wear ribbons attached to your bonnet. If you were single, they were pink. If you were married, they were blue. If you were a widow, they were white. Interesting. These people had a heart for mission and were praying about mission 60 years before William Carey came onto the scene. One of the biggest misnomers in the Christian church is that William Carey is the father of modern day mission. That is not true. I am an utmost sort of admirer of William Carey, and apart from him being Baptist, meaning that is not influencing me whatsoever, he was an incredible man, was William Carey, uh, and in no way do I want to sort of belittle him. In fact, you're looking at a man who has seen a lock of hair that was on the head of William Carey. <laughs> That gave me five years off a Banner of Truth conference. Uh, <laughs> if you go to, uh, to, to, Regents, to Regents College in, in Oxford, they have uh, down in the, in the basement, they have a little gathering of all these bits of memorabilia of, of William Carey, and there's a lock of his hair there. His handwriting is immaculate. You know, what an incredible man he was. But 60 years before he was doing anything to do with mission, here, here were the Moravians praying about mission and doing mission. The first two missionaries, missionaries were men called David Nitschman, 
and also Leonard Dober. And uh, they set out to reach the West Indies, which was absolutely incredible. Uh, and what is interesting is this. Sixty years later, William Kerr was in a mission in Kettering, and he took in a magazine called Periodical Accounts. And he went into this meeting of, of, of uh, Baptist ministers. He threw the magazine uh, onto the table and said, look, this is what the Moravians are doing. Why are we not doing anything? And so, really, it was the Moravians that, that inspired William Carey to say, come on. It's all right talking about, you know, we are the elect of God and, you know, strict and particular and all that kind of stuff. Let's get out there and reach the kind of people that we believe belong to the Lord. When these two men set off, how about this? This is very significant. When these two men set off for the West Indies, their first two missionaries, they had a valedictory service. Wouldn't it be interesting to sort of get answers from the congregation? How many hymns did they sing before the boat left the quay? One hundred. I bet they thought they were never going to go. The final one was wish me luck when you wave me goodbye. A hundred hymns. Unbelievable. Anyway, they sang the hundred hymns and, and, and they set off. Over the next few years, a constant trickle of, of people came out from Hernhut. All this praying, singing, sort of talking about God's word got them fired up. And something had to be done with that energy. So they went to places like the West Indies, Greenland, Africa, Algeria, Egypt, Iraq, Ceylon, Ethiopia, Turkey, North America, and Europe. And by the time Carey left the Isle of Wight... Remember, he had uh, two attempts to go out to India. He was put off, first of all, by the captain of the ship at the Isle of Wight when the captain found out what he was going to India to do. So he went back and got his wife and took her and then got the next boat. When he left the Isle of Wight for his second attempt to go to India, the Moravians had already sent out over 300 missionaries on world mission. Zinzendorf, who by now was the leader of the Moravians, he sent a man called John Tolshking to London to try and make a bridge and do something in our country. And he came, it really didn't work out well. It wasn't a well-worn warm deception. So he went back. And several years later, Zinzendorf sent this same man, John Tolshking. He said, I want you to go to Georgia. And so he went to Georgia along with nine other Moravians. He sent back word to Zinzendorf, we've been well-received we need more workers. And so Zinzendorf sent out another 26 Moravians the following year. The boat was, was going to leave via England, via Gravesend. That's, uh, if you're not a good sailor, getting on board ship at Gravesend. <laughs> it's like if you're not a good flyer and you go to the departure lounge. <laughs> And this is the final call. <laughs> oh, dear me. So you get on board ship at Gravesend. And, and who got on board ship with them? Oh, yes. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, Benjamin Ingham. And that's how these three men came across. Ah, these are the Moravians. Who are these devout people? When the Wesleys and Benjamin Ingham were in Oxford, there was a man there that they came across, 
and uh, he was called James Hutton. Having finished in London, he then opened a bookshop in London, and uh, he, he was interested in spiritual things. When he heard that his friends were going out to America, he, he accompanied them from London to Gravesend and, and took them on the boat. And John said to him before the boat sailed out, he said, James, when I get there, I'll write to you on a regular basis. We thank God for those letters because uh, this gentleman had a, a, what you may call a Bible study in his home in London. Uh, and on a regular basis, fair credit to John Wesley, he wrote to him, said, dear Mr. Hutton, you know, this is what is happening over in Georgia. And so maybe one week a letter would arrive from Mr. Wesley. After the Bible study, James would say, we've got a letter from John. And he was talking about the Moravians, talking about what was going on there. It was incredibly interesting. I referred yesterday to the, to the crossing of the Atlantic with Benjamin Ingham, how that John Wesley never got seasick, but Ingham, and Ingham got seasick just for 30 minutes. They kept running into storms. And uh, what is interesting is this. We, we have the accounts from Benjamin Ingham and also from John Wesley, but more from Benjamin Ingham. Whenever a storm came, all that the English could do was scream. <laughs> scream. But the Moravians sang hymns. Well, they had a good repertoire. They got a hundred to get through. <laughs> and uh, Wesley was afraid to die. He writes, At night, I was awakened by the tossing of the ship and the roaring of the wind, and it plainly showed that I was unfit, I was unwilling to die. While they were going to America, on several occasions, the Wesleys and Benjamin Ingham said to the Moravians, uh, you know, we are believers. They weren't. They thought they were. We're believers. Can we join you for your services? The Moravians said, no. No, they're just for us. When they arrived in America, John Wesley walked into a Moravian bishop called Spangenberg. And uh, the first thing that John Spangenberg said to John Wesley is this. Sir, can I ask you a question? Have you got the witness of the Spirit? Do you know that you are a child of God? I report, I report what Wesley said. I was surprised and didn't know what to answer. So he further asked me, do you know Jesus Christ? I paused and said, well, I know he's the savior of the world. Yes, said Mr. Spangenberg, but do you know he has saved you? I answered, I hope he has. I hope he has. It's pretty obvious, sir, that this man did not know saving grace. In America, John Wesley was a total failure. We know that. And uh, he had to flee, basically, because of some accusations, got on the boat, and he came home. When he came home, he bumped into another Moravian. You can see how these people were slowly kind of invading his life. And uh, who did he run into? He ran into a man called Peter Bowler. And if you look at the back there, you'll see the grave of, of Peter Bowler. He was an educated Moravian. He spoke German, French, uh, Latin. He was conversant in Greek and Hebrew and English. So he was Wesley's match, because Wesley spoke seven languages. So he couldn't go, oh, here's one of these kind of dumb Moravians. Here's a man as intellectual as, as uh, John Wesley. And uh, sadly, Peter Bowler, he died at the age of 43 after, after a massive stroke. 
But this little meeting that had been started by James Hutton to receive the letters of John Wesley was now growing. And when Peter Bowler kind of walked into this, this group, James Hutton said, wow, you're the man to lead us. You know more than we do. So here is a safe Baravian leading a Bible study in London. Uh, and anyone who wanted to know what was going on spiritually, that was the place to go. Uh, and what is interesting is this. This meeting, which got larger and larger, and in the end had to move to Fetter Lane, because that many folk were coming to hear the exposition of God's word and to sing hymns and to pray together, a mixture of saved and unsaved. They never called themselves a sect. There were English people and there were Moravians. And the English people said, we are Church of England. We're not doing anything to clash with the church. And uh, James Hutton's mother thought her son was crazy. In fact, she said, I think my son has gone mad. What on earth is he doing in these meetings? This is what John Wesley walked back into. And you can imagine how insecure he felt, thinking, I've been to Oxford. I'm an ordained Anglican clergyman. I've been on the mission field. I speak seven languages. And I'm walking back to this meeting in London that I left several years ago. And here are people speaking of the new birth, who are speaking of being alive in God. What on earth are they talking about? He was deeply, deeply troubled. Remember how he wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay, and I believe myself when no danger is near. But let death look me in the face, and my spirit is troubled, nor can I say to die is gain. He was in Oxford on one occasion, and he bumped into Peter Bowler again. And he said to Mr. Bowler, how can I preach faith when I haven't got it? Peter Bowler, that classic answer, preach faith till you have it, and then because you have it, you will preach it. Now, who would have given him that advice? Would he have said, go to Cornhill? <laughs> no, he wouldn't. But, uh, you know, would he have said, don't, don't, don't you dare get in that pulpit until you really believe. No, you preach it until you have it, and then when you have it, you'll have to preach it. The problem was, you see, John Wesley had the same kind of problem that is endemic now in the evangelical church. So what's the problem? The general idea these days in most evangelical churches is that belonging is believing. And you see, well, he did believe because he belonged. And the idea is we're all at different stages on the journey, but as long as you're belonging, don't worry too much about the believing, that will come later. And as we're shuffling along, we sing, one more step along the road I go. <laughs> what a hymn is that? <laughs> Ditch it. I have a parody, one more step along to Rome we go. But anyway, that's... <laughs> so, so you sometimes come across people who are in evangelical churches who belong but don't believe. And woe be to you if you say, excuse me, have you been born again? But I come, I'm part of the church, I'm part of the family. John Wesley, at this point in his life, did not believe... In, in instant conversion. He rejected it. Peter Bowler brought him four people who gave their testimonies to explain how they'd been born again by the Spirit of God overnight, and still he argued against it. That's fine, said Peter Bowler. I'll bring, more, I'll bring eight more along. So what I find incredibly funny, you can now understand this heartwarming experience, where no wonder he was surprised that he went to a meeting at Aldersgate Street, and I was, I felt my heart strangely warm. 
Oh, it's happened to me. The very thing I've been denying and all these people and, and almost preaching again has, has happened to me. And uh, there's nothing wrong in asking people, have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Belonging does not mean believing. So here's this man. He's, he's now been born again. And then, as I mentioned with Benjamin Ingham, he goes out to the Moravians and uh, they're not particularly warm to him. Uh, and then it got a little bit nasty, to be honest. They weren't exactly uh, blameless. After John Wesley had visited Hernhut to see Mr. Zinzendorf with Benjamin Ingham, they said, Mr. Wesley, we believe you are a child of the devil, a servant of corruption, having eyes full of adultery that cannot escape from sin. <laughs> he wrote back to Nicholas Zinzendorf, Mr. Zinzendorf, with regard to your church, you greatly exalt yourself and despise others. You do not receive the ancients but the modern mystics as the best interpreters of scripture. And I just want to say, men, put your handbags away. <laughs> you know, come on, stop, stop playing silly, silly games. But, but that's what happened, you see. This kind of, this, this division came right away. And what is interesting is this. Wesley actually wrote to Zinzendorf and said, you know, I was as good a Christian before I met Peter Bowler as afterwards. Well, that's a blatant lie. Because he wasn't converted. But, you know, sometimes when you get this kind of cataract over your eye, you only reinterpret history where you come out well. The Moravians now were, were becoming quite strong in London then, in spite of all these little spats between them and John Wesley. The work of James Hutton was flourishing. They were now in Fetter Lane. You know, it was the place to call into if you're going on to world mission. Go to London, go to Fetter Lane, get blessed, get encouraged. They now felt they should start stretching out across our land. And, and they had two places that they had their eyes on. One was Wiltshire. And then the other was Yorkshire. There's an expression, I just can't recall the whole expression about from the sublime. I don't... <laughs> anyway, they wanted to go to Wiltshire and they, they wanted to go to Yorkshire. Who was in Wiltshire? Remember a family several generations ago that fled and finished up in this country called the Senek family? Oh, in Wiltshire there was a man called John Senek. And, and he had this Moravian background. And at the age of 17, John Senek was converted. And he wrote, here's his words, My heart danced for joy and my dying soul revived. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am thy salvation. I no more groaned under the weight of sin. The fears of hell were taken away. Christ loved me and died for me. I rejoiced in God, my Savior. I would say from all my studies over many years, looking at the Moravians and, and what happened in, in, in the 18th century, I would say that John Senek was the greatest Moravian missionary. He had Moravian roots, obviously intermarrying into English families. He was a great evangelist. And uh, he used to live just literally about 50 miles from where my, my wife and I used to live. And sometimes on a Saturday we would go down to Senek's chapel and house and just kind of go in there and think, wow, this is where a man preached who shook the whole of this part of the world. He worked with the Wesleys. He worked with George Whitfield. But really he was a Moravian at heart. But for credit to John Wesley, he couldn't start picking on John Senek. There was nothing to pick on. 
He was just a very sweet, gracious man who just loved to reach out to lost people. George Whitfield loved him. And uh, Zinzendorf said that looking at Senek is like looking at the Apostle Paul revived. Wow, what an accolade. Yeah, that's the kind of man he was. The Moravians sent John Senek, after really doing wonders in the, in the, uh, the Wiltshire area, they sent him to Dublin to work with a man called Benjamin Latrobe. The Latrobe family is a big Moravian family. And uh, Benjamin Latrobe was one of, the, one of the Moravians. They went out to Dublin. After one meeting, John Senek said, when the meeting was over, Benjamin and myself picked up between us 2,000 stones that had been thrown at us. He said, miraculously, not one hit us. I don't know what to deduce from that, but, uh, but they were certainly well, well received eventually, <laughs> but not initially. And uh, after working away for quite some time in Dublin and, and getting things established, and there is a, a Moravian chapel there in Dublin, he then went up to, to Northern Ireland. And I would say it was probably Northern Ireland that John Senek was his, at his most successful uh, and he planted churches in, in Ballinderry, in uh, Ballymena, uh, Castle Hill, Kilwarren. If you go to Grace Hill, which is in Ballymena, it is a Moravian community. And it's beautiful, beautiful. It's a little bit like the community that you have just outside Bradford. You know, all the chapels there, uh, and all the buildings are there, uh, and the graveyard, all the stones are flat in a graveyard, a Moravian graveyard, because in death we're all equal. But how about this? Men on one side, ladies on the other. Why, you couldn't do that in our day and age, could we? So, so, I mean, just outside Belfast, there's a place called Kilwarren, and there's a picture of it there. One of their converts was a Greek convert who became one of their pastors. And, and, and this pastor was so homesick for Greece that he constructed his garden on, on the shape of Thermopylae. Because at Thermopylae, there was a terrific victory where, uh, where the Spartans defeated the Persian army. And he said, every day, I wanted to look out onto victory. I often use that illustration on Easter Sunday. We all want to look out onto victory, don't we? So he opened his study window, and there was Thermopylae. And it's still, it's still there today. It's a nightmare to mow, but thank God for fly mow. But it's, it's up and down, but it's absolutely wonderful. That's the kind of people they were. John Senek began to empty the churches in Northern Ireland. And a meeting was called by the Anglican clergyman to say, we have got to get rid of this man. What did the bishop say? We have his quotation. If you preach the same message as this man, Jesus Christ and him crucified, then your people wouldn't have to go too far to hear another man preach what you should be preaching. Now go home. Yeah, how many, how many kind of bishops do we have like that in the House of Lords when they're awake? <laughs> John Senek was a talented hymn writer. And he was writing hymns before Charles Wesley. And what is quite interesting is that when you get all of the hymns of John Senek, which, which I find are very, very helpful, and then look at the hymns of Charles Wesley, there are occasions without any stretch of the imagination where Charles lifted from John Senek. Sometimes he tweaks. Of course, John was a prolific, sorry, Charles was a prolific hymn writer, and in no way my sort of belittling him, but he did borrow one or two expressions. But hey, 
all of us are guilty of. Yeah. What is it? To steal from one is plagiarism. Is that right? To steal from two is research. One man that he led to the Lord was a man called John Montgomery. And uh, John and his wife both felt exercised to go out to Barbados to be missionaries, but they had a son. What do we do? We don't feel we should take him on the mission field. So they left the son behind called James Montgomery, and uh, they left him in, in Leeds in the Moravian community. You've heard of James Montgomery. He's a hymn writer. If you go to Sheffield, to Paradise Square, you'll find a large monument to James Montgomery. He wrote some lovely, lovely hymns. He finished up the editor of the Sheffield Iris, which is a newspaper. He finished up in prison several times, too, because of his convictions. But James Montgomery was a Moravian. Now, if the Moravians rode on the back of John Senek in the south of England... They rode on the back of Benjamin Ingham in the north of England, and we, uh, we've kind of we've heard all about that in our previous talk. How Zinzendorf said we need a northern base, and it's got to be here, Lambs Hill, and it's still there today. And if you ever want an interesting little half day out, why not go to Fullneck? And they actually have a, a little museum there, which is just full of the history of the Moravians. It's not too spiritual, if I'm very honest. Uh, I was telling somebody, I, I turned up and they specially opened the museum for me. I, I don't often carry 50-pound notes in my pocket, but uh, they had one or two bits of memorabilia, and they had some, they had some Moravian cufflinks at £10. And uh, I said, oh, I fancy those, and pulled out this £50. It looked like a bit of a scam, as if, you know, could you give me £40 in return? And I'd clear, of course, this is the fake. Uh, and so they wouldn't sell me the Moravian cufflinks, which, which I wanted to speak and kind of flash to you. But uh, if you ever want to go there, it's, it's a very little interesting place to, to visit. Paid for initially by Benjamin Ingham, but all the wood came from Norway, free, given to them. Also money came from, from Germany. When they had their first public meeting there, 4,000 people came to hear the preaching of the gospel. And, and, and that's kind of uh, how it continued for quite some while. They received quite a bit of persecution in this country, so much so, how about this? Nicholas Zinzendorf came over and asked to meet with the British government. And so the British government met with Zinzendorf, and he put before our government that they were not a sect, they were not a cult, but they were a Protestant denomination. And would you please register us as a Protestant denomination so that this persecution can stop? The, uh, the government bought into that, and they were officially declared a Protestant denomination in this country, and therefore are exempt from this kind of abuse, technically speaking, that they have been getting, which is fascinating. They then scattered everywhere right throughout the country, even went to Wales, to Haverford West, went to North Wales, to a small place called Hreath Thee. And my wife and I sometimes go quite near there to a cottage. Uh, and, and I often wondered, what is that little place? You, know, it's, you kind of drive past it on the road. and It was only in doing research on the Moravians. Ah, this is the Moravian place. This is where the Moravians used to meet over 200 years ago in, in North Wales. How strong were they? You'll be shocked at this. In 1800, 
a national census revealed that there were 577,000 Anglicans, 115,860 Methodists, and 2,596 Moravians. The highest they ever got in this country, 3,253. Isn't it amazing such a small group of people was so influential, almost like a catalyst, just inspiring other people to do evangelism and to talk about the Lord Jesus. In common with other Protestant churches, once the fervor of the 18th century revival was over, they quickly just almost petered out. And uh, today there are, I think, around 31 Moravian chapels around our country. But I'm sure if you stood up in your congregation on Sunday and said, who knows what a Moravian is? Most folk wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. And who's ever seen a Moravian chapel? I put here in my notes, they remind me very much of the Plymouth Brethren, often losing their best people to other denominations. Now that's not the end, by the way. That was just the introduction. <laughs> I just want to point out a few interesting things about these people in, in a way that I trust you will find helpful. And uh, what can we say about some practical application? Let's talk about their leader, Nicholas von Zinzendorf. He was a man greatly influenced by the pietist movement in Germany. And that movement stressed against a background of formal religion, new birth, holy living, and talking about your faith. So when Zinzendorf, who is a study in and of himself, came to the Lord, these three things were uppermost in his, his life. You need a new birth, you need to walk with the Lord, and must be willing to speak about it to others, otherwise how else is it going to spread? To us, that is not rocket science. But when you're living in a very cold, formal state religion, that is rocket science, and it still is to a lot of people in those kind of churches. Uh, and so wherever he went, he, he wanted people to feel what they believed. You've got to feel it. Now, why was he severely criticized? Why did John Wesley not like him? Well, there was a clash of personality. But I've got to be fair, neither did George Whitfield. And George was a fairer man than John Wesley when it came to judging character. Why, were they, why was he criticized? His lack of theology his style of leadership, his financial impropriety, and his sending out ill-equipped missionaries. Remember last year, a long time ago, we looked at William Booth? Why was he criticized? His lack of theology, his style of leadership, sometimes his handling of money, and sometimes he was sending out people he really shouldn't have been sending out because they were not equipped to do the task they were being sent to. It all fell at Zinzendorf's door. In spite of his liberty in the spirit, he loved vestments. And he loved ceremonies. And I pointed out last night, he also loved to be called Papa Zinzendorf. As time went on, a number of Moravians saw him more as a liability than an asset. And how about this? I'm not slandering the man, I'm giving you facts. 
when he died, he left behind debts of 150,000. Time that into a gentleman who lives in my house. He's called Mr. Google, and he's very helpful. The figure of four million pounds came up. You say, what was he doing? Was he going to Barbados and living in big hotels? <laughs> was he going around the world speaking at Keswick meetings? No. He was, he was outstretching his resources. You know, he, he kind of saw this world that needed the Lord Jesus. And so he kept sending people out. But the trouble is, there was no resources to pay for it. He was borrowing all the time. So that when he dies, suddenly, wait a minute, we've got all these debts. We've, we've, we've gone beyond what we can do. And so they started to have to pull back. What does stick in the throat is that he wrote to one missionary and said this, Dear sir, if you take a penny more than you need, I'll dismiss you from this service. Okay, Nicholas, that's not very good. Secondly, worship. The Moravians were big on worship. You've, you've guessed it. They love to sing. <laughs> when Zinzendorf was in New York, he was fined 18 shillings for writing a hymn on the Sabbath. <laughs> when he was coming home from New York uh, on one of his trips, he, uh, he wrote a hymn, Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness. Guess how many verses it has? 33. <laughs> Guess what hymn we're going to close our meeting with? <laughs> yeah. 30, 33. Now let me tell you something which I find incredibly significant. John Wesley and George Whitfield did not like Moravian hymns. Why is that? Ah. Blood and wounds theology. Both Wesley and Whitfield said, we, we love some of the hymns that they write, but they wallow too much in the sufferings of Christ. And they're always talking about his blood and his wounds. Now, I am only responsible for what I'm going to say. I have noticed, probably in the last five or six years, there is a creeping back into our hymnology blood and wounds where people are always thinking about the wounds of Christ the blood of Christ now don't get me wrong it's by his blood we are cleansed but there's a great emphasis these days and I think sometimes this is too horrific what you're singing this is not what I find in scripture this is what we're adding to scripture let me quote you two of their hymns to show you and uh, I, I've chosen these carefully I could have given you many as I've waded my way through their hymns here's one verse my heart with joy, with joy abounds. I found the ocean of thy wounds. There I'm a little dove of fish. This is my bed, table, and dish. <laughs> That's pretty tame. I don't know how I'm going to keep a straight face reading the next one, but I'm going <laughs> to... They were fascinated by, by the gash in Christ's side. Lovely side hole, take me in. Let me ever be in thee. 
Oh, side holes wounds my heart and soul, does pant for thy so lovely hole. If I once securely fit in the bleeding side hole slit, oh, then I forever dwell in this lovely plural cell. I think it goes to shine, Jesus, shine. Their hymns are full of this kind of stuff. You know, wallowing in, in the wounds and in the blood of Christ. You know, and uh, even sometimes in the evangelical world, you know, when I was brought up, if you didn't mention the blood, you were almost liberal. You know, if the gospel didn't mention the blood, that wasn't the gospel, brother. And, and, and when you tell people it's not the blood of Christ that saves us, otherwise what was the point of him dying? He just could keep shedding his blood perpetually. What does his blood speak of? When you kind of speak like that, four think you're a heretic. So what is the blood of Christ? And what are these wounds? We've got to be careful when we think about these things. John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield said, it's unbiblical and unhelpful. And, and whenever Zinzendorf was preaching, he always spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ as my lambkin. Come on, come on, Nicholas. George Whitfield, uh, he liked the Moravian people, but he didn't like their structure. And uh, he, wrote, he wrote to a friend, I am not a son of a Moravian church, though I love the members. Writing to another friend, George Whitfield said, I have, been, I have lately conversed closer with Mr. Peter Bowler, the Moravian leader in London. Alas, we differ widely in many respects. Therefore, to avoid disputation and jealousies on both sides, it's best to carry on the work of the Lord apart. God grant we may keep up a cordial and undissembled love towards each other, notwithstanding our different opinions. In Wales, there were some well-known uh, revivalists, Daniel Rowland, William Williams, uh, Howell Harris. Daniel Rowland and Howell Harris uh, on occasions had their clashes. And uh, on one occasion, Daniel Rowland, in order to insult Howell Harris, said, you Moravian. <laughs> okay. That would be like saying to Dr. Peter Masters of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, you charismatic. <laughs> or to Morris Roberts, you emergent. <laughs> yes. I love, uh, I love what Howard Harris said in response to being called a Moravian. He said, while the Methodists had been quarreling about doctrines, the Moravians had advanced a thousand degrees before them into the heart of Jesus Christ, and they are so deep in Christ that the Methodists could only see the flaps of their coats. <laughs> Missionaries, in spite of their fopperies and their, their kind of weird stuff in certain areas, they were moved by the love of Christ. The love of Christ constrains me, says the Apostle Paul. And that word constrain is a powerful word. It means I'm in a vice and God's, God's love is squeezing me like a vice. And I have to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Moravians were great missionaries. I have two books there that I, that I purchased and I've been reading and, and doing lots of other research too. I mean, if you can get hold of the life story of David Zeisberger. 1721 to 1808. He was, he was a Moravian missionary to the Mohicans. 
and, and also to the Indians of Delaware. So he lived among them, he learned their language, and, and this Moravian missionary is beginning to pastor them. My eyes were opened when I read the diaries of, of this gentleman, David Zeisberger. Don't forget there were no medicines in those days, like we have medicines. It's bizarre the stuff you have to read, but I love reading it. Even in his diary, this may seem totally trivial to you, he identifies all the different kinds of snakes in the area. And if you're bitten by this snake, then this kind of plant will, will be an antidote to the, to the venom. And you think, isn't it amazing that over 250 years ago, before they had anti-venom like we know it today, these people, these Indians, knew how to deal with different snake bites. And if you have this, take this. I mean, the kind of structure within the Mohican, sort of Delaware Indian society, we could learn a great deal from. Now, don't get me wrong, there was sin, there was godlessness, but in terms of running a structure, we sometimes think of the Indians running around like crazy people, just scalping every Indian going. They were a very well-structured society. He went in among them, and he led many of them to Christ. Then came the war between Britain and the colonists. And the colonists said to David Zeisberger, who are you for? And he said, I'm not for anybody. I'm just here for Jesus, for these people. Decide. The British came along and said to him, who are you for? He gave them the same answer. What did the... What happened to him? I'll tell you what happened to him. The Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania militiamen put him in prison and shot 98 of his members. And when he was released from prison, 98 people he'd led to Christ, this Moravian missionary, were no longer there, executed by the men from Pennsylvania. Wow, what, what an incredible sort of man he was. And, uh, and you know, here's... Here's this man, 250 years ago, reaching out to the Mohicans. And sometimes we talk about you know, people who have yet to be reached. Sometimes, I, sometimes that can almost be a myth because all that we can do is reach the generation in our lifetime because sometimes those generations who lived there before have already been reached. But then they've died out and then another generation comes along. By the way, the way that the Moravians evangelized would not go down well with certain missionary societies today. The idea of starting in Genesis and doing a Bible study right through until you get to the cross, they said, does not work. They said, we are ambassadors of Jesus. And so what happened? Well, some Arabians did go to Greenland and they started off with creation, Genesis 1, Genesis 3, the fall, and then the flood, and then the Tower of Babel, and explained the sin of... didn't work. So when they went the second time, they went straight to Calvary and said to people... You are sinners. There's something wrong with your heart, but a man came 2,000 years ago to deal with that, and we're here to tell you who that man is, and his name is Jesus. So the Moravians went straight for the jugular. As for education, this is interesting. They were big on education. They set up schools, and there's still a Moravian school at Fulmec, where you are taught within the parameters of, of Moravianism within reason. And they had 14 schools in our own country, and uh, they also believed in the education of women. My grandfather was a Plymouth Brethren who did not believe in the education of women. 
And he told my mother, once you finish school, that's it. You get out and bring some money in. You know, this idea of college, night school, university, get that out of your head. That is not for women. So it shows you how advanced these people were, saying, no, we've got to educate people. But there was a motive to that. They said, if we can put the word of God into the hearts of young people while they're young, we'll see them go right through. Does that work or does it not? The Methodists admitted that only 5% of the people, i.e. children who went to their Sunday schools, actually finished up in church converted people. They had a 95% fallout. There are plenty of 21st century Moravians around today who likewise believe we should put all our money in youth. Hence the reason why most churches have a youth pastor but don't have an evangelist. And the question is, what is the fallout? And how many people out of youth groups can you say really have come to faith in Christ, are now establishing the church, and are now doing something spiritual, but have not just dropped off the end of the pier when they get to 16 or 17? That was their reasoning, and I just didn't think it really worked. They were big on the lot, not lottery, the lot. And uh, I love this. If they couldn't decide what to do as leaders, they had three pieces of paper. Yes, no, and blank. And, and they would pray about it. And then the leading elder would put his hand in the lot box, of which there is a picture there, and pull it out. You say, what would happen if it was a blank piece of paper? It says, they believe, the Lord knows, but doesn't want to tell you yet. You say, what did they use the lot for? They use the lot in terms of, you know, you go to them and say, I really feel exercised to be one of your missionaries. If they could see that was clear, they'd say, of course, that's wonderful. We're going to train you and send you out. If they were unsure, after much discussion, they reverted to the lot box. Likewise, with marriage. How many of us would be married if it was down to the lot box? You know, I, I, I would like you to officiate at the, the marriage of this young lady and myself. Wonderful, we can see it's of God. If we're not so sure, we'll cast lots. What I love, how about this? Richard Viney was an English Moravian. He'd been converted and joined the Moravians. He got tired of this lot business. He'd met Zinzendorf. He'd met Peter Bowler. He'd met one or two others. And so he said, I'm tired of this lot business. It's got to go. It's kind of superstition. What did the Moravians do? They had a decision. <laughs> they had a decision to make, but couldn't come to a decision, so they cast lots to know whether he was right or not. This, he, lost, he lost it, and so he was thrown out. A letter from Spangenberg, writing to his wife, says, how about this? The devil is using great cunning in Yorkshire. He leads the English labourers astray to think it is a shame. Listen to this. The English labourers think it is a shame to be ruled by Germans. Almost all the labourers are infected with this plague. Zinzendorf, he said, these British brethren cannot tolerate, sorry, we cannot tolerate the independent thinking of these British brethren. Kind of, you know, this... 
our kind of people. Wow. Wouldn't get away with that these days, would it? Yeah. Theology. Zinzendorf used to speak about the Holy Spirit as mother. And again, uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley weren't too keen with that. I don't think he meant uh, too much by it in the sense of, you know, I don't think he was preaching the motherhood of God, but it was this sense of motherly care. God is like a mother. So he often spoke of God as mother. And uh, he didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture or the verbal inspiration of Scripture. How about this? Zinzendorf believed it was dangerous to give some church members a Bible. Now, if you're a pastor here, I think I heard you say amen to that. They were not Bible people. Okay? They were a verse a day people. The verse of the day is, and they live by verses. I've read their modern day beliefs book, and today they are incredibly ecumenical. Famous people? Any famous Moravians? Just two. You heard of William Blake? His mother was a Moravian and used to meet at Fetter Lane. Benjamin Latrobe's second son, you'll see a picture of him at the back, he designed Capitol Hill. After we British had destroyed it, uh, he redesigned Capitol Hill and is well known uh, as a gifted architect. What about their overall assessment? And I close with this. Let me give you a quotation by a man called Bruce Jenkins. The Moravians were neither uniformly good nor uniformly bad. There is enough to keep them within the boundaries of Protestantism, but enough bad to cause considerable alarm. I thank God for this catalyst that came into this country that ignited the whole thing and then almost kind of disappeared. Can I read you my final paragraph to get it exactly right as to how I personally feel? We have to admire their commitment to world mission. We have to admire their focus on Jesus Christ. They were totally Christocentric. We have to admire their self-effacing attitude. We have to thank God for the part they played in the evangelical awakening in this country. But equally interesting is that none of the leaders of the awakening in this country would work with them. They all got close, saw what they were like, and then backed off. There are modern-day Moravians around today who are not official members of the Moravian Church. They love the Lord. They're keen to talk about him. Worship is high on their essentials. They are predominantly biased towards youth. They are very experience-driven. They are ecumenical in their churchmanship. And yet scripture isn't really authoritative or central except when they want it to be. They may not, may not, may not be governed by the lot, but this has been replaced by high-powered leaders who are incredibly loud, flamboyant, and culture-driven. There isn't much that I admire about them, but as for, sorry, there is much that I admire about them, but as for walking with them, then that is a different story altogether. I love their motto, our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. The more I get close to people, 
the more it drives me to the Lord Jesus. I thank God for them. And like George Whitfield, I can walk arm in arm as long as you don't have to look eye to eye. Let's pray together. Father, it seems to us you bless all the wrong kind of people and use all the wrong kind of people and we include ourselves in those categories. Who in their right mind would invest the kingdom of God in people like us? We are frail, we are fractured, we are broken, we're made of clay, we have our biases, and yet you've not only saved us, but you've trusted us with the gospel. Father, thank you. And Lord, there are people in our Christian past who've led us on in the things of God that we don't always agree with. And we couldn't really walk eye to eye with them, but we give you thanks that they're yours. And Lord, we don't want to spend our time hitting them around the back of the head. We want to use our time speaking about the Lord Jesus. Father, you know my feelings. I say from the bottom of my heart's heart, thank you for the Moravians and for the way they impacted this country and the world for good. And we ask and pray if we can catch their world vision, we can't go far wrong. Father, thank you most of all that we don't follow a Methodist or a Baptist or a Moravian. We follow the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ, your Son and our precious Saviour. Amen.